Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to the Friday Reporter Podcast. It's a podcast where me, Lisa, the host, interviews journalists and the journalism adjacent about their work. The Friday Reporter Podcast is in partnership with PR Daily. And if you don't know about PR Daily, it is a tremendous uh, resource for communicators like myself and you and and the folks you work with. Uh, PR Daily actually just launched what's called the PR Daily Leadership Network. It's a peer-to-peer brainstorming and networking opportunity for mid-level communicators, uh, access to uh, measurement of SEO, uh, business fluency, presentation training, lots of other opportunities there at prdaily.com. If you're interested in the PR Daily Leadership Network, be sure to mention that you heard about it on the Friday Reporter Podcast to receive $500 off of your membership. Hello, and thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Friday Reporter Podcast. Today's episode is a perfect example of the way Washington, D.C. works. Uh, I'm at the gym. I'm doing my thing. I'm working out next to another person. We're having a conversation about life and all the things that we do in this town. And it turns out that my workout partner was Larry Miller, who is a news anchor and consumer investigative reporter for WS- WUSA 9 here in Washington, mm-hmm. D.C., I love this story, Larry. Hey, thanks so much for being with me. Lisa, thank you for the invite. You know, I mean, um, the way we bonded over burpees was just serendipitous, <laughs> you know? <laughs> if, if ever there were a positive to be had from that horrible exercise that, that it is, <laughs> that would be the one. That would be the one. So, Larry, I mean, you have this great esteemed background. You have an Emmy. You have uh, awards. You have a terrific background. You also have a lot of great stories to tell. But I'm curious to get started with with how how it all got going. How did you get started in journalism? Yeah, that's such a good question. You know, I think um, kind of back to in the spirit of kind of back to school where we are right now, I think we have to start. Uh, with the morning announcements in elementary school. <laughs> and, no and for kidding. me, yeah, for me, it started being the uh, animal reporter for Halstead Academy. And what I would do is I would not only read the morning announcements, but I would also produce a story on a particular animal. And I was just kind of recounting that experience with a friend that said, you know, one of the stories I was really proud of in elementary school was uh, the report that I did on ferrets and what they are, what they look like. At the time, I also had a pet ferret. And so the school allowed me to bring my pet ferret in and I got to show it on the morning announcements and talk about it. Now, I, I think we just to be clear, the morning announcements at at that elementary school was via TV. So they saw us throughout the entire building. And I think that's really where my reporting career first began. I love it. Halstead Academy. Um, From there, you know, I would grow up and kind of pursue a number of different things, you know, training at the Maryland Youth Ballet uh, in Silver Spring, wanting to become a professional ballet dancer. I would go on to to dance with uh, as a guest artist with several companies. Um, but I really found myself um, in undergrad just t- trying to find where I fit in. Mm. And I think every journalist you talk to will talk about this moment where they realized that they had this um, unusual addiction to watching the news and reading about oh, it. Yeah, that makes sense <laughs> to me. Yes, everyone typically has that moment. And so uh, for me, in undergrad at the University of Pittsburgh, I decided to get an internship at um, a TV station. I was at WPXI, Channel 11 News in Pittsburgh. And I interned there and 
that's where I realized that this was my tribe. I, I needed to be in this environment because every day is different. The business is so dynamic and it's constantly changing. And I wanted to be in the middle of it. And so that's where, for me, this news bug really took off. That is terrific. Um, I, I was a ballet dancer up until high school. So I admire that because I know what kind of commitment that takes. But what a great bridge from being a performer and being involved to then figuring out a way to 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 bridge that gap and turn it into being uh, in the in the news business. And so, where after Pittsburgh did you make it back here to to the D.C. area? How where what, where'd you go from there? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting in this career field, the way you kind of get back to major cities, you kind of have to make your rounds around the country. Mm -hmm. So after I finished my time at the University of Pittsburgh, I took kind of like a a gap um, between undergrad and graduate school. And I worked um, in a nonprofit dealing with civic leadership. And so I, I worked on this fellowship for about a year. Uh, it was a program called Coro. After that, I went to graduate school. I finished graduate school in a year, and I got my first TV job out in Medford, Oregon. Um, and I never—the first time I went to Oregon was the day I moved there. Oh, you're um, kidding! With, with three suitcases and waiting for my car to arrive three weeks later. And um, <sighs> talk about culture shock, because I listen—I was a kid that grew up in the East Coast, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah lived in Baltimore, Pittsburgh, you know, I had a, a, in a at the time, a rather affected accent. <laughs> <laughs> you had to cleanse that real quick, I bet. I did. I had to wash myself <laughs> up, right? So, you know, you, you get off, I get off the plane and I smell pine, just this yeah. strong scent of pine trees. And I was like, wow. I was like, Dorothy is not in Kansas <laughs> I know it. I believe it. Wow. Um, I spent three years in Oregon and probably the most rewarding, peaceful time in my entire career. It was, I learned a lot. I made a lot of mistakes. I had a lot of support. I made no money, but I had the best time of my life. And What you find, especially for broadcast journalists, is um, many of us, you know, go to these smaller cities that we usually don't know anything about until we get there and are just trying to get our reporting stripes so that we can get to the next major market. And I had a cohort there that I still keep in contact with to this day. And actually one of my best friends is uh, Laura Cavanaugh, who now works in San Diego, is someone I met at my first job. And so that first job to me is so special because I learned so much and I had such a good time. And it was, and I was just challenged on all fronts, culturally, reporting-wise, professionally, uh, in terms of my own personal relationships, all of that was just being challenged. And it was it was scary, but it was rewarding. And I spent my three years there, and then I got my next marching orders to go to Birmingham, Alabama. Oh. Talk about... What a switch from, up. <laughs> right. <laughs> one end to the next, right? Um, it was in Birmingham. I felt more culture shock in Birmingham, Alabama than I did in Medford, Oregon. How about that? And, and I thought for me, it was interesting because after being there for three years, Medford had just, for me, become home. Yeah. 
Yeah. It was, it was being outside. It was, you know, um, having drinks at, you know, various vineyards. It was going to different tasting rooms. It was running in the mountains. It was, you know, having, um, great times with friends and then to go to Birmingham, Alabama, where the history of that city is front and center. And I'm having to confront things culturally that in my prior experience, I really didn't have to confront in those same ways. That's interesting. So you find yourself um, as a journalist in a new city being both you know, reporter and also being student, right? Because yeah. I have to learn about this particular community, what makes it tick, what are the intricacies, because all of that sort of information is helping to advance my reporting and makes it makes it helps me make sure that I'm not making some of those rookie mistakes that people make when they go into a different city and they kind of parachute in and then parachute out. Yeah. So in Birmingham, that market that city is, was really designed, I felt, to really test whether or not you were going to continue on in the business, right? Really? It, and, and, and I say that because while I was there, it really was, I worked 12, 14-hour shifts often. I did breaking news there consistently. We were chasing storms. We were at every shooting. Um, at the time that I was there, we had that... that um, unexpected freeze that took place uh, in parts of the Southeast. So it affected Alabama, it affected Georgia, and people had gotten stuck on interstates for for days. Yeah, I remember that. I remember reporting from a bridge that I had spent the night on for about 17 hours. Oh my goodness. I was there day. Wow. (laughs) It was like, yeah, in the morning, in the evening, in the early morning again. And... I'm so appreciative for that experience of working in Birmingham because it really tests whether or not you have the skill, ability, and whether or not you have the hunger to move on to the big leads. And so after spending two years in Birmingham, Alabama, I got the call from, um, you know, my boss in Birmingham, he said, hey, I'm going to help you get this job in D.C. He made a phone call for me because he said I did well and I was a good worker and that he was going to support me. He called the news director in Washington, D.C., and that's how I got an audition and then eventually got the job. That's that's amazing. It's yeah. really it, it's a job where you, you really do have to prove your mettle. You have to prove your willingness and your, I mean, and certainly 17 hours in the freezing cold reporting on that incident must have been very um, character building, for lack of a better way to put it, really (laughs) amazing. Uh, And so you're, so now you're here and you have this great job, you're a news anchor, you're, you're doing investigative journalism. Um, Talk to me a little bit about what, what that looks like today for you. Talk me, talk to me about the job today. Well, you know, it's interesting because I anchor a show every single day, DC's number one afternoon newscast. I'm I'm proud of that because we work hard. Um, and so every day at 12 o'clock, I'm on TV. And then usually before that, and then even after I'm done with the newscast, I'm working on getting information, contacting sources, setting up interviews for investigations that I'm working on. Currently... I'm I'm in this beat of dealing with housing. And so oh, wow. that's a big one. 
it's huge. And, mm-hmm. and last year, um, I broke a major story about um, alleged appraisal bias, home appraisal bias in Prince George's County, Maryland. And what we did was, is we profiled several homeowners who have homes, you know, above a million dollars that were finding their homes when appraised were coming in consistently hundreds of thousands of dollars lower than what they expected their home appraisals to be. Oh, wow. And as a result of that reporting, we were able to show that it wasn't just this community, that, but it really speaks to a nationwide issue that's been going on. So we broke that story last year. We've been following up, um, you know, since we broke that story. And then uh, the families that we are profiled were invited to the White House and uh, the Biden administration unveiled new policy changes aimed at making the process of home appraising more equitable for families across the country. That's great. To see your work um, go from what really started as an idea in a conference room to having this major report to seeing this community group come together and and fight for equitable home appraisals mm. to seeing the industry respond to seeing the the legislature in Maryland pass a law that will now study this yeah. uh, to then getting invited to the White House to hear the vice president and to interview the secretary of housing and urban development about this issue in particular and what the administration is doing about it for me was probably has been the highlight of my career this far. It would have to be. I, I mean, that's it's amazing. And it's it's got to be a big part of why you get into journalism, right, is that you want to shine a bright light on these inequities and these issues so that change can happen, right? I mean, that, that to me seems like so much of why the business that you're in is so important to this day because of that very reason. Oh, absolutely. And you know, I, I think back to one of the first conversations I had with um, FUA, which is the Fair and Unbiased Appraisal Advocates. This is the group that formed, the community group that formed, responding to the suspiciously low home appraisals in that particular community. Mm. You know, I, I told that group, I said, trust me, I'm, I'm going to do right by you. I'm going to tell a fair story and we're going to get attention. And they did. And as a result, we were able to change laws. Mm -hmm. We were able to affect homeowners across the country. And I think you walk away with the sense that the long hours, the phone calls day and night, the conversations, the negotiations that happen behind the scenes, the the work that happens behind the work is all all worth it when Mm -hmm. you know that you can have a positive impact on the lives of every American and making sure that it's fair for everybody. I I absolutely love that. And it's honestly, it's, it's a big piece of the reason why I wanted to start a podcast to talk to folks like yourself, Larry, is because I really see the value in the work that you do. And it is, it's a bit of an unsung, it's an unsung career, unsung hero, maybe is the way to put it either way. Mm. It's, it's this great work that you do every day. And and a lot of times the thanks for that is that there's distrust, there's uh, dissatisfaction, there's a, a variety of other sort of factors that you face while also doing the work and reporting the the important uh, findings that you that you come up with. So awesome. That is 
of course you should be proud of that. That's fantastic to, to, to hear about and to know about and mm-hmm. not only affect change here in the community that you reported on, but also to know that it's had change across, it will have change across the country. It's fantastic. You know, absolutely. And I think too, it's also recognizing that it's not your work, but it's also the work of your colleagues at other TV stations across the country too. And I think, you know, what was really interesting when I went to the White House, when I was invited to to go, is that I met um, Julian. Julian is a reporter um, from the ABC television station in San Francisco. Now, Julian had also done a report where he profiled a family that had gotten a suspiciously low appraisal and then had a um, a friend who was white stand in for them and watch that low appraisal jump by more than $200,000. Oh my gosh. And oh so my gosh. the work that I was doing on the East Coast and the work that he was doing on the West, mm. to see that all come together when he and I are meeting in the White House. And I said, you know, are you the one that did the, the story in California? He's like, yeah. He's like, are you the one that did the story in, in Prince George's County? I was like, yeah, that's me. And and for us to have that moment where he and I are, are kind of reveling in the fact that, you know, two different stories on, you know, opposite sides of the country that's affecting everyone from, you know, the West Coast to the East Coast and, and those in between. And for us to have that moment where we come together and say, hey, we did this, um, was just, you know, I, I don't think you can really describe how you feel in that moment because you feel like everything that you you went through, everything that you worked for, and it, it all came together. And I think what makes it, you know, even sweeter the is knowing the support that you had inside the building mm-hmm. to to make those things happen because it really is, you know, I'm, I may be the, the face of those reports, but it is the photographer, the producer, the, the editor that are helping to all tell the story together because we're all working in tandem to make sure that we tell the best story that we possibly can. Absolutely. And that's something that I think that oh, through the course of the last year and a half that I really came to realize that the, the way this industry works, uh, you know, as much as you're in the newsroom, you're not only getting pitches from outside from folks who know about stories like this that are happening in the community and around the, you know, where you are, there are also, you know, there are people inside the newsroom that then have to pitch to their editors and to a variety of other people. It's the whole, the way the system works is that everybody really needs to come together. So really it, that's like, that is a moment. I mean, that is really not only a remarkable accomplishment, by you and your team, but also to know that there ha- to have that support there in the community is dynamite. Is that the particular story that, because you have several amazing and, and the accolades that you have are, are remarkable. I mean, is that an, one of the award-winning stories that you worked on? What else? Tell me another, tell me another story. You've got all these great, great reports. Yeah. So I, uh, we, we won, we just recently won a, um, an award from the National Association of Black Journalists for that investigation um, regarding the ale- allegations of home appraisal bias in Prince George's County. Awesome. We also got an, uh, an Emmy nomination as a result of that as well. Um, one of the stories that you know that I, I still think about to this day is this story. Um, this the one that deals with kind of food inequity, mm. um, food inequality mm-hmm. in. Uh, Southeast Washington. So, you know, we wanted to show people what it's like for some 
who live in areas where there are few grocery stores to go out and get groceries. Oh, wow. I found this woman, her name is Mrs. Tibbs, mm-hmm. and she's, at the time, she was about 82, 83 years old. Oh, wow. And and I said, I'm going to follow Miss Tibbs from her door to the grocery store back home. And I want you to see how, and I wanted the audience to see, and, and what we showed was how this small, you know, petite, mm-hmm. older woman mm-hmm. had her little shopping cart, just the cutest little thing you could imagine. Was, was taking her shopping cart from her front door in Southeast Washington to get to the bus stop, to get on the bus, to get off the bus, to get to Safeway, to do her shopping, to get back on the bus, to get to the bus stop close to her house and to walk three or four blocks to her home. Oh, my goodness. That trip took us two hours. Oh, my gosh. And you think about Miss Tibbs and what that's like for her. You know, this is a woman, I mean, she's she's an elderly woman, right? Yeah. I mean, when you see her, I think a lot of people saw their their gam gams, their grandmothers. Absolutely, right? of course. Like, that's the first thing you see. And I think what we articulated in that story was that what so many of us have in our, you know, suburban neighborhoods where mm-hmm. we have access to a variety of grocery stores for certain communities, even when they have the sort of economics that can support more grocery stores, there are there are factors that are contributing to them not being able to have those sorts of grocery, those sorts of amenities. Mm-hmm. And um, I was overwhelmed after we did produce that story by the number of people that called the station, people from all over the city asking what could they do to get Miss Tibbs to the grocery store. Mm. I had I had a woman who uh, took Miss Tibbs groceries uh, as a result of our reporting. Every Tuesday she would drop off groceries to Mrs. Tibbs's house. Oh wow. Because she was deeply affected by the story that we produce. Another another family reached out to me uh, saying that they would take Miss Tibbs wherever she wanted to go um, as a result of the story that we produced. And it wasn't just them, but it was thousands of others that wanted to help. And it's amazing how just one person's story can uplift an entire issue. And, yeah. and you know, we think about Washington, D.C. as being this very affluent place. And to some extent, it is for some, but it isn't for everyone. And right. To think that you know, we have a city that's as big as it is to have food deserts like that right here in our community yeah, is, is it's, it's exa- I'm aghast by that. Yeah. Yeah. It's mind boggling. I mean, yeah. just east of the river, Ward 7 and 8, there are 150,000 people. At the time we did that story, there were only three grocery stores. Oh my Two of them were in Ward 7. One was in Ward 8. And so just being with Miss Tibbs, leaving the house with her, watching her push her little buggy around, having the Metro bus driver, as sweet as he was, help Miss Tibbs get her little buggy on the, on the bus. Mm-hmm. Us being on the bus with Miss Tibbs and she's talking to everybody, doing everything that she can. At one point, the the way the walkway was set up after we got off the bus, it didn't allow for her to kind of go into the parking lot of the grocery store easily. So we had to jump this median in order for us to get over there. Oh, wow. And you see all of that and you realize and there's that. Not, there's not just one Miss Tibbs living in this community that yes. we are in. Yeah, hundreds, hundreds the of them. Yeah. And so um, the the best part about being a journalist, I think, especially in the, t- the type of reporting that I do, 
is seeing my work elevate an issue and watch the community rally to find resources, find solutions, and provide support to the people that I need. love that. I love it. It, it. it doesn't get any better than that because no. it's like it's like you know it's like wow I I you put a lot of love and intention and intentionality to everything that you do and, and to watch it blossom in such a way that you see people helped, but you also see people try to figure out what's next. And then as a result of that, the elected leaders are now having to be held accountable. Yeah, that's great. That's that's what I love. That I makes love a that. difference. It really, it really, really does. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Larry, I mean, and I know that this is a passion for you, um, but but you also have some free time. What else, what do you what keeps you busy when you're not covering these great stories about Washington D.C.? Um, free time. Who's got free time? <laughs> <laughs> what else is keeping you busy, my friend? Um, in addition to that, um, I also work full time as an assistant professor at a community college, and community colleges are really, um, really important to me because. You know, my mother went to a community college mm-hmm. and I remember when she was going through her program that I would sit in class with her as she was doing her lessons and I would be in the back doing my homework. Awesome. And so I find the community college experience to be unique. And so I, I love being here. And so this uh, being at the, the college, eats up a lot of my free time. But when I do have free time, you know, I am now getting back into trail running, something I used to do out in Oregon. So I used to run 50-mile, 100-mile races. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so I, I love the pain. Yeah, <laughs> you have to. <laughs> yeah, I love the runner's high that you get. It's pretty awesome. So I'm getting back into that. And then, you know, I'm just doing a lot of reading as well. You know, I think there's so many, like, uh, great books that are out there that I've been just trying to to get into and, and, and try to finish. There's at least uh, three books that I still have yet to What's key, finish. Which one, which one is, uh, you have a recommendation for the for the audience? Uh, Katie Couric's book. Okay. Uh, the the title escapes me right now. Let me see if I can find it. But um, Katie Couric's memoir, really good. I got through. She least. dishes. She dishes in that too, right? Yeah. She has a lot to say. I think. <laughs> I was like, okay, Katie, <laughs> go ahead, girl. <laughs> but you know, I think you know, for someone like myself that is you know in Washington and 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 sees myself, you know, continuing to rise to the ranks. You look to people like Katie, you look to people like Don Lemon, you look to all these others that have made it as as kind of giving you a pathway for what sure. the future could look like. And so it it was important for me to at least kind of get into her, some of her stuff. I've read Don's book before too. Um, and it's certainly helpful um, when I consider what my career has been and what it will be in the future. I love that. I absolutely love it. And I, I, I'm actually, that's on my list of, of books to read because I do think that she gets really into it and talks a lot about not only journalism, but some of the other stuff that we are curious about that maybe went on in the, the Today Show. So I will I will check that out. <laughs> Larry, b- before before I let you go, um, first off, what do you what do you teach at the community college? What do you do at the community college? So I teach Foundations of Communication oh, and awesome. I teach uh, news writing, which is appropriate. <laughs> oh, yeah, I bet. <laughs> I think everybody could use a little bit of that. Even if you're not a journalist, I think that that, that model of writing is so much of what people need right now. Being able to know how to write, um, especially in that kind of short form uh, that yes. is in the news space. So that's great. Yeah, we um, we 
in, in our class, we spend a lot of time with uh, our P, our our PR students and working mm-hmm. with them. And so we have these conversations, you know, I, I, I tell them, you know, to kind of walk them through the editorial process. And I also tell them two tips about how to approach a journalist and how to develop those relationships that are going to be beneficial for when they're a professional and they're looking to get their story published, uh, what they need to do in order to make that happen. So they've been surprised. I've, I've, I've shown them my email account. I'm like, listen, these are the 3,000 emails I get from different agencies. I believe but I'm it. Only I'm only going to look at this one, this one, and this one, because you know what? These three people actually know something about me. They know what I cover and they know this is a story that actually I'm interested in. That is the biggest takeaway from the podcast. I always am sort of curious what, you know, what's working, what's not working. And the one thing that is the universal piece of advice that has come from every journalist I've spoken to is that very thing figure out what it is I care about. And if you don't know, spend a little time and watch what I've done, you know, or listen to some of the interviews I've conducted, listen into the Friday Reporter podcast, maybe, and, you know, get a sense of what I care about, because that alone is so important. I also think too, I say this to young public affairs folks myself all the time is, um, as much as you can try to get to know a journalist before you need to pitch them a story. Yeah, it's hard. Yes. Sometimes it's hard, but certainly take a minute to get to know them. Uh, buy them a cup of coffee, visit with them for a moment over a sandwich, do a little extra reading before you pitch them uh, because that really does, it makes so much of a difference because you're right. A th- is it really, I mean, 3,000 emails? I believe it. It's crazy how much you much must take in every day. Yeah, it's, it's, it's insane how many emails I get. But, you know, again, I, I go back to the, the, the ones I respond to are the ones I have an established relationship with, with those folks and those companies. But they also know, too, that I'm not going to I'm not going to pursue everything that you send me. And we just we had that relationship. They know where I'm at. I, I let them know where I'm at work wise. Yeah. And, um, you know, as a result of that, we, we just we, we've gotten into a flow now that works for everybody. I love it. All right, Larry, before I let you go, uh, I need a recommendation. Who should I talk to next for the Friday Reporter podcast? Ooh, you know what? I'm going to do, I'm going to recommend Marissa Mitchell. Marissa Mitchell is an anchor at Fox 5 here in D.C. Marissa and I have a great relationship because she and I worked together in Birmingham, Alabama. So There you go with that small town Right. Coming up through those small yes. towns, those small networks. Yeah. So I, I think that she would be a great person to interview next. I love it. I will reach out to her. I will tell her that you nominated her. And Larry, I am just I'm super grateful for your time today. Thank you so much. No, thank you. I appreciate it. And I'll see you at the gym. Yes. <laughs> the less burpees, the better, my friend. Yes. <laughs> and that's today's Friday Reporter podcast a podcast in partnership with PR Daily, a tremendous and helpful guide for all things public relations. Find us there on their website and join us again for another episode soon. Thanks so much. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. 
You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.